Paul Saliba was once described as a man of fire. His dance and choreographic work possesses a sense of energy, light and warmth. The man himself is excitable, committed and vital. A conversation with Paul is enlightening and reaffirming. He talks to stages about his time with the Australian Ballet, the car accident that could have put an end to a career, his work with the Sydney Dance Company and studying in New York with the great Martha Graham. His work is fed by a fascination with world cultures and their employment of dance as personal expression, as storytelling and as history. Paul is one of our great custodians of dance in Australia. All who have worked with him recognise his brilliance and passion. So it was a great delight to talk dance with Paul Saliba. Are you tired? No, no, I'm not tired. I'm actually really happy to be able to, still being able to give young people kind of a history lesson at the same time because I think they need to be uh, made aware of how things were for dancers in the past and I'm really, I'm really, really dedicated to passing on that sort of difference, you know, of how it was for me when I was a student and when I was a little boy dancing and how it is for them now because it's another world, it's another time. They uh, have to be better sooner. They've got uh, huge challenges in front of them. So do you consider yourself a custodian of the dance? Yeah, I think I have to be, otherwise I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Because, I mean, you've worked with some, uh, which we'll get into during the interview, some considerable talents in your career, Mm -hmm. as well as your own. Um, And I I think probably it's a responsibility you probably... um, would like to accept that that you need to pass that on to the next generation. Yeah, I kind of I kind of think it about it like this: um, Indigenous people in Australia have been passing on their history through dance for millennia, you know. And the ballet world or the dance world is a very kind of unique place because it is for me a kind of a sacred thing, a very spiritual thing. And I didn't really realise when I was younger that when I was dancing, I was actually spiritually connected to what was going on inside my body. I, did, I wasn't aware of that. But as I've matured and gotten older and read a lot, a lot of things about, you know, Buddhism and focus and mindfulness, I started to understand, well, that's what we do when we're training. Well, that's what those little 10-year-olds are doing because they've got a talk to themselves, have a conversation with themselves and say, oh, you know, my teacher, he, he wants me to put my left hand out with my right foot across there. And so they're very, very into what they're doing in, internally to make it externalise. So, yeah, I think it's really important to keep trying to develop those skills to help them adjust to what they need to do to make it all work in the future. Where did you grow up? In Adelaide, in the Adelaide Hills, basically. And uh, I went to a dance school in North Adelaide uh, that was run by a fabulous lady called Joanne Priest. And I used to go to this fabulous old house down the road with my mother on a Friday. And my mother used to work there as a cleaner. And they used to have a lot of receptions there. And 
one day I was there with my mother and this lady was getting a reception thing ready, like a fashion thing ready, and she had this music playing and I was jumping all over the place to the music and this lovely lady said to my mother, who's that little boy? My God, he's such a little good dancer. And I was just improvising. I can't really remember. And she suggested to my mother that I go to this lady called Joanne Priest. So she took me and my mother to meet Joanne Priest. I danced for Joanne Priest, I think, in a pair of blue bathers and just improvised. And she told my mother that she would teach me classical ballet and give me a scholarship because I would never have been able to have afforded it. A family of 10, you know, Maltese immigrants, didn't know what ballet was. You know, it's a sort of a, kind of a, you know, the Billy Elliot of the time, the only boy at the dance school. So it wasn't a case that your sisters were doing dance or anything? No, nothing like that. All heavens above, no. So it was a happy accident? Yeah, it was a happy accident, a very, very happy accident. And when somebody asks me about things like that, I kind of sit back and go, wow, what an incredible kind of beginning to a journey because I didn't know what ballet was either. I used to just go to the movies with my brothers and all the Indians would, you know, a Western movie on a matinee that, and the Indians would all be dancing and my mother would have to grab me because I'd jump up out of the seat and start, you know, mimicking those Indians dancing around the, you know, before they went to, to war. <laughs> That's how it kind of all started, you know? Tapping into that imagination. Yeah, well, I just kind of think that kind of thing about... When I think about that, I think about that connection about my attraction to Indigenous cultures around the world, Balinese dance, um, you know, American Indian culture, the culture being connected through dance, Balinese culture connected with dance, Aboriginal culture, the centre of the culture's dance, the languages passed on through dance, the stories are passed on through dance, the mythologies passed on through dance. So like I said to you previously, you know, it's that kind of sacred thing that when you said to me, am I tired? No, because it's that's what keeps me going, that kind of really strong spiritual element to what dancing's about and try to help young dancers connect to that through my storytelling in the classroom. So da- dance is part of your psyche. It's about the way you move. It seemed that you were, you were born to have some sort of career in, in, uh, in dance. Do you think it was your destiny? I mean, if, if that hadn't have happened where that lady had seen you, you would have found dance anyway? I probably would think so, yeah. Not that I ever really think about that because that's how it happens and so that's how you think about it. You know, I don't understand that there would be... I wouldn't be aware of maybe that there was any other circumstances that would pull me to that. But I think probably, yes. My sister said to me, they used to take me to these rock and roll dances on a Friday night and I'd sort of get out there and dance with them all and everybody would stop and make a big circle and I'd dance for all these people because... I'd just in my blood. I don't know where it... And I don't know where it came from because no-one else in the family was interested in that. And then as I've gotten older and I think about my father, he was very creative. He could make something with nothing, like he could make a, a sprinkler out of a piece of tin from a fence. You know, he could fix a motor car and pull it to bits and he never learned. So I kind of think that the creativity in its rawness came from my my father when I think about that, you know. But uh, would have I found it another way? I would imagine so, because it was pretty strong. Were you a show-off? I mean, I'm thinking, you know, a family of ten, nine siblings, um, did you have to compete with them for attention? No. No? No. 
No, I'd, I don't think it would have... Actually, when people used to say, come on, get up and dance for us, I'd be really shy. But once I started, I wouldn't even know that they were there. So I think it's what I keep... I'm going to go back to that again. It's that meditative thing about... Or, you know, when people take go into trance, and then when they go into trance, they don't know what else exists, they just... I think that's probably what used to happen to me, but I didn't know that that was happening. So no, I, I would honestly say no, I was not a show-off. I was actually quite shy about it, but under the right circumstances, I think I learned very well when we used to have a concert and I used to dance at that concert and go on stage and improvise, not learn a set dance, because I was very good at that. Once I started to sort of be taught the technical aspects of dancing, you know, like Royal Academy of Dancing Ballet Technique, I found that quite difficult because I kind of felt restricted. So, uh, yeah, I wasn't a show-off. But I knew that when I was on stage, I had, a, I had an audience. I just think I just love that situation. You know, we know that, you know, the Billy Elliots of the world, you know. Yeah, we, well, you know, that's a great... You know, great film for everybody. It seems synonymous with everyone's story. You know, the kid who fish out of water, yeah. who finds yeah. his great passion, etc. Yeah. From Did that sort of really weird back, back background that's not privileged. You know, it's not eastern suburbs. It's not wealthy parents being able to afford ballet classes. And I kind of really like that image of the ballet teacher smoking cigarettes. You know, because that's part of the thing that I talked about before. You know how things have changed the difference how our ballet teachers used to have a little stick and we'd get prodded with a stick you know all that fabulous stuff now where we're very much there to protect the student look after the student make sure we we teach them in a sort of a really nice holistic way and I, I learned a lot about holistic teaching from being with Aboriginal people you know and whereas before when I first started to teach I taught like, I was taught, you know, like we're in the army now, you know, because it's a very disciplined art form. So as a young boy learning to dance, did you cop much flack from school and from the other kids? No, a little bit. Once they found out that I was a, dan was a dancer because Joanne Priest had a television program on Channel 9 on a Sunday for a half an hour called Southern Stars. And I used to dance on that. And it was interesting because she used to use Aboriginal music as her theme music for the show. And it was a children's program called Southern Stars and it was about little young actors and dancers and she'd put it all together and I'd have to go there and film it. So you enjoyed some status as celebrity amongst the kids? No, there wasn't really... An, there wasn't that kind of thing about celebrity. No. Then, right. that's what I... Nobody looked up to you as, oh, wow, you're on television. Wasn't... I never felt any of that. Uh, yeah, I did get a bit of flack at school and, you know, but my brothers put a stop to that, you know. So you're very much protected by... Yeah, my brothers, my brothers knew that there were some boys at school that were giving me a hard time. So my brothers went to the school, talked to the talked to the principal, talked to the teachers, and I think really scared them because my brother's, you know, tattoos on their arms and things. Yeah, so that, that sort of stopped. But no, no, not not to the point where anybody bashed me or anything like that. Um, of course, one of um, the country's most famous names in dance, Sir Robert Helpman, yep. also come, 
Camp yep. Adelaide. Yep, Mount so, Gambier actually he right. came from. So had you heard of him growing up? No, I didn't. I'd never heard of Sir Robert Helpman until I was in the Australian Ballet Company, and uh, we had a really nice, we had a really fantastic relationship. You know, uh, he was really fantastic because um, I often say to people, uh, they don't, they don't make people like that anymore. Those sort of people, I, I don't meet people like that anymore. Who well, what, are, what was special about him? Totally and utterly individual. Bigger than life. At, at a time where I suppose a lot of that was... Uh, every, even a taxi driver knew who Sir Robert Helton was. Right, yes. Such I mean, he was fame. so incredibly famous. You know, like, well, he was responsible for bringing Uraeth to Australia to, and for us to get that production of Don Q and make that movie in the in the hangar at, in Melbourne at the airport, you know, to do that uh, he was he was really the one probably one of the most fabulously individual person I'd ever met it was so incredible you know it wasn't high camp or theatrical or anything like if you looked at him you know if you judge a book by its cover you know it's that that is a Clement Crisp or Quentin. Quentin Crisp. You know, you judge, you look at you look at that image and you go, my God. But after an hour when you sat down with somebody and you start to talk to them, you go, my God, there's a really deep, amazing, fabulous person in there it, that's not eccentric at all. He's just really in touch with, you know, he really loves dance and theatre. But he's such an extraordinary talent in that it wasn't only dance, his skills... Uh, led to uh, direction and acting, well, um, choreography, opera. He had a great uh, career in film yeah. in Hollywood. Directed us in Hamlet. Right. Like he produced Hamlet. Yeah. I was the grave digger in Hamlet. Nureyev was Hamlet, whatever. That uh, uh, that wonderful thing about being with somebody uh, in a room who really knows what they're doing and you just feel so safe and, you know, you're being told and directed and why you're turning this way and why you have to lift your head like that and why you have, you know, give this step that much height or, like, really fine-tuning um, to that professional thing. When you're with somebody like that that really lifts you and opens doors and shows you things you've never been seen before or tells you things to do that you've never... is really enlightenment absolute enlightenment and I consider myself extremely privileged to have had that experience not just with him um, when Martha Graham used to talk to us when Fontaine danced with us when Antoinette Sibley was with us when Anthony Dowell and I'm not dropping names I'm saying when people have reached that kind of um, level of of dedication to their art form it's truly inspiring well, I guess when they a pass it on. You know, they're passing all that on. Yeah. So when I teach, in my when I sometimes am in my solitude, it's so wonderful to think I'm telling them what Helpman told me. Hmm. I'm passing that on like Aboriginal elders pass it on to their younger children, like old Balinese women pass it on to their Balinese grandchildren. So that wonderful thing about dance... And I, can, I keep going back to it, don't I? That dance is connected to this fabulous, timeless thing and it's forever changing, it's forever evolving. Yes, Swan Lake is Swan Lake, 
and it's supposed to be dance like that. But then we've got people that have made contemporary creations of these things. So the dance, the dance is an ongoing, forever evolving art form that's linked to timeless, 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 timeless spiritual growth and energy. There are many more interviews in the Stages Archive where we talk to directors, designers and drag performers. Actor-producer Trevor Ashley considers the doubt that has sometimes niggled at him and confesses to what it is that he really craves. I, I have doubted myself a few times, but not often. I think I doubt respect. That's the thing I doubt. I sometimes feel like I'm an industry joke. Really? Yes. What, what, what makes you think that? Because I'm so ridiculous and because I do drag and because it's not legit and it's not, you know, I don't know, that's how I feel and yet I've been told by many people that that's absolutely not true. But I think that's, that's the nagging. Let's go back to that boy in Adelaide. So when did you start to realise, or the people around you start to realise, that this kid has potential and could have a career as a professional dancer? When I auditioned for the Australian Ballet School. So how old were you then? Probably 14, 15? 14, 13, 14. Right. It all gets a bit cloudy there. <laughs> <laughs> gets a bit cloudy. Yeah, I remember doing that audition and... I wasn't accepted the first time because I was. they thought I was too small. I remember Joanne Priest taking me to some doctor in a hospital to check my bones or something to see if I was going to grow anymore because I am quite short for a classical ballet dancer. Indeed, I think Dame Viggy, Piggy Van Prague, when you joined the ballet company, said that you'd have to work really hard in order to become a... Um a principal because of your height. Yeah, that's right. Mm. But then my height became my asset because I got all those fabulous... Those character roles. Those like fantastic Puck. roles like Puck in a Midsummer Night's Dream, The Jester in Cinderella, Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet, because I could jump. Um, yeah, so in a way, that thing where my height... They were all worried about my height. Then my height became my asset and because I had an enormous amount of energy and personality. And there are those character roles in ballet yeah. which need to be filled. Yeah, well, uh, ballet companies need all different shapes and sizes and whatever. So, yeah, so that I just, I've just recently been to Adelaide and when I was in Adelaide, I went to the railway station and I remember leaving Adelaide at the railway station when I was just there thinking, oh, my God, this is where I said goodbye to my family and my ballet teacher. And they brought me down to the train and I caught the overnight train to Melbourne and I went to the Australian Ballet School and spent my time there for, what, three years because I think I had to repeat. And I remember the day that they told me that I'd been given a contract and I thought, oh, my God, that's when I kind of realised, answering your question, this has really happened. This has really, really happened. But I didn't really know. <laughs> I just kept dancing because I loved it. I didn't think about the outcome. No. When, when, you, when, you talk, when you're talking to me now and I'm answering the question, I was never aware of the outcome. 
I never thought, will I get a job? Won't I get a job? I just love dancing every day. Mm. Uh, that's a significant um, event in a family's life, isn't it? That you, know, you talk about that saying farewell at the train station. Because it's not only farewelling a son who's going to go off and train at ballet school for three years, it's probably farewelling a son that's now on his own. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, you know, Maltese family, very connected. Um, yeah, it was hard. And it was funny, a month ago, reliving that space, being in that space, I kind of realised how traumatic that was for me to leave. Mm. You know, and for your mum, no 40, 50 years later, 50-something years later, I kind of realised, my God, that was that was amazing. But the desire must have been so strong because we did it, you know. And that's what dancers do. They have to leave home. You know, I'm teaching... At a very young age. Yeah, too. I'm teaching people now that are, you know, as I said to you, it's a very different world for them. We've produced a DVD for them. They've got a classical solo on the DVD. They've got a contemporary solo on the DVD. And the DVD is going to America and Europe and da-da, And they're catching aeroplanes and doing auditions in Germany and Munich and, you know, um, Houston in America. And I couldn't have done that. That didn't happen. There was no, DV, no DVDs. I had to go to New York to find out what Martha Graham was. I had to actually go there, you know. And the only reason why I discovered Martha, if I'm not jumping all over the place, because we were dancing in London, doing the Merry Widow, and some of the dancers, Colin Peasley, Kelvin Coe, and a few other dancers, Martha Graham, Martha Graham Dance Company was on at Covent Garden, and I think it was the, that was the first time a contemporary dance company or a foreign company dance company, had been able to use the stage at Covent Garden and we went to a matinee and I never looked back. What were you doing in London at the time? Were you there with the Australian Ballet? We were there with the Australian Ballet doing the Merry Widow right. at the Winter Garden Theatre. <laughs> I think Fontaine was with us. Oh, yeah, I think so. And um, so we went to that performance and they did a ballet called Clytemnestra. Martha Graham did it. It was one of her works. And they did, of course, I'd, that was the first time I'd ever seen anybody dance with no shoes on to this incredible music and all this movement stuff on the floor. And it blew me away. And I can remember saying to Colin Peasley, I want to learn how to do that. Because, so how, how was Graham's technique different to a classical? Completely the opposite. Right. Contractions release inside, like it all comes from in and goes out. Ballet's all kind of a little bit more external. It's all safe. You're not allowed to fall over. Martha, you fall over because there was that kind of uh, revolutionary thing going on between classical dancers and contemporary dance. And Martha was experimenting and, you know, going off in her into her world and saying, no, women have got other things to dance about. Women aren't just pretty little princesses dancing on point in tutus. Women have got other things to dance about. And she danced about life, women's pain and suffering. Or it's all, all, all based on contraction and release. Um, you know, I think, and I saw, what else did I see? I think I saw her do a ballet like Joan of Arc. You know, then all the Greek mythology legends, Clytemnestra. Um, so it was it was completely the opposite. It was, it was Martha's reaction uh, to classical dance. And there was a bit of a war that went on, you know, like 
oh, you know, contemporary dancers that are, uh, aren't, they're only doing that because they're not good enough to be a ballet dancer. Well, all that sort of, here we go back to that, that's all flipped around now because really, in my view, contemporary da- the best contemporary dancers now have got a very strong classical technique because the techniques have married together. They've fused. Here we go. You know, the evolution of dance. The, mm. It's all growing. It's still growing. I can remember they were reading an article in one of those, uh, in that CV I gave you, talking about how I'd thought in the 80s that um, how dance was marrying together, that, you know, contemporary dance techniques like Cunningham, Limon, Graham, uh, Horton are all marrying in with classical dance. And so the dancer of the futures going to have to have all of those different languages inside their body mm. to be... And that's what's happened. We're living that now. I kind of say we're in a, we're in the middle of a fabulous renaissance in dance and the theatre with the technology giving us all these other fabulous things to marry together. Right. Well, while we're talking about Martha Graham, let's jump to your period in New York. So you went over to study with her from 77 to 79. Yep. After a period at the Australian Ballet, which we'll come back to shortly. Um, so, what was it like meeting the woman at last? You, you know, you'd seen these ballets in London. You're inspired. You thought, I want to dance like that. Pretty um, over, pretty overwhelming. What was she like? Well, she was just gorgeous. You know, um, not a lot of contact, but the times like I would probably sit down and talk to her in the foyer of the school. And she was totally, just just totally this, a bit of an enigma, you know, like it was... <laughs> was she a presence in classes? Did she actually I, teach or was she just yeah, there by I day? Yeah, I did some classes with her, yeah, right. we did classes. How old would she have been at the time? Oh, I have no idea. Right. 70, 80, 70 something? Right. 70 something. Uh, really powerful way of speaking and a very, very, not probably like me, you know, blah, or very direct, uh, uh, nothing sort of unnecessary, uh, totally and utterly awesome and inspiring. What you you know, that thing about, how can I explain it? When you're in the presence of a presence and you feel this kind of unbelievable energy, it kind of almost silences you, that kind of thing, where you're just hanging on every word that they speak. That kind of sense, that feeling, and how incredibly dedicated she was to what she did, what she'd done, and how she does it like unbelievable dedication. And obviously, that's a great influence that you carry into your work today. Yeah, well, as I said, you know, those moments, like meeting, being with people like that, has a profound effect on you. You know, for the the. the the duration of, of your yeah career. well yeah my for my teaching life but it's it also kind of a, you know when I open one of her books or read about something I, I'm actually connecting on I have that person inside me you know I've met that person I've been in the room with that person and you know sometimes she'd be she I can remember she was waiting in the foyer of the school one day and I sat down near her and I I said good morning Miss Graham. Good morning, you know. And I said, "Oh, are you waiting? You you you're going somewhere?" She said, "Yes, I'm. 
I'm going to go on stage tonight to take a bow and I'm going to the beautician to have my makeup. And she was very, um, a very proud person about the way she presented herself. And I kind of learned that a lot about how you present yourself. Um, you know, make sure you do the, the best you can the way you, when you dress and clean. That, that she was a very, always presented herself beautifully. What was it like living in New York at that time? <laughs> Party time for me, really. Really? After, well, yeah, well, after being in the ballet company, mm. you know, you can't, you can't go out late. I discovered disco in New York. I did a, had a fabulous kind of, you know, I did some, I would say, fantastic, fantastic party time for me, you know, but with that same discipline of being a dancer. Yeah. Like when I went out, I mean, very lucky in New York, you know, you go, to, you go out in New York, you go to Studio 54, you know, and Dinah Ross is dancing there, you know, or whatever so it was that kind of amazing thing about being in York, York when you're younger and thinking wow this is this is what we read about and I'm living what I've been reading about you know this is really really happening I'm I've got the Martha Graham school at my disposal I can go and do classes at Alvin Ailey I can go down to Cunningham I can go there I can go and see a show on Broadway so for me I think it was after being on stage for all those years and putting all of my energy into giving out to your audience audience every night seven shows a day you know um, having a month off at the end of the year and starting all over again and travelling and living in hotels and motels, doing all that for so long and then all of a sudden, oh, here I am in New York and I said to myself, oh my God, I've just realised something to one of the other dancers. This is the first time in 12 to 15 years that I haven't packed a suitcase. From, and it's six months, I'm living in New York. Oh my God, I'm living in New York. And it was just doors wide open. You know, fantastic night discotheques. So, what were you talking about? Studio Fifty Four. What were some of the other discotheques and well, you know, clubs I went, that you went to dance? Well, I went to lots of gay ones, yeah. lots of gay uh, Paradise Garage, which was all underground. The Saint, you know. So there were all those things where um, those gay, those gay discotheques discotheques were the ones that all straight people wanted to end up going to because we were doing that fantastically we had all that organized before anybody else really they did it really 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 well yeah. and it was really nice to be in that environment where it was for gay people mm. and only gay people mm. so we had our own protective space I'm just curious too because you know, you go there, it's um, a place where you can dance and that personal expression and, you know, disco was evolving, the music of the time. Ha has any of that period fed into your work now or influenced you in any way, the sort of, no, club dancing? I no. mean, rap rap at the time no, was... Yeah, I know what you mean, I know what you mean. No. But, I mean... Uh, I think of, you know, I went to New York recently for the first time in summer and it's such a vibrant city in summer because, you know, the apartments are so small for people so they gather in parks and yeah. on the street and there's a party every night yeah, and there's people dancing. I think probably if it evolves in my work, it's there in its energy. Right. Not yep. necessarily yep. in its style, you know, not not yeah, disco dancing. But, the energy. But, well, yeah. I think I, I kind of realised that that time in New York was so good for me because it kind of 
it kind of infused me. It taught me about energy levels. It taught me about commitment because I was on my own. I didn't have the security of being in a company with a contract. I had a scholarship from Sir Robert Helpman to study with Martha, which helped a lot, but it didn't help me enough. I had to clean apartments to survive. You know, I didn't have a, a really nice, comfortable time in New York. I mean, I struggled. I mean, I, had, I lived in an old warehouse with no heat after five o'clock because they switched the heat off because it was a sweatshop building, you know, in the garment district. Right. And that's where all the Puerto Rican women used to come and sew. Yep. And we found this space and we moved into that. So it was communal living? You were living well, with a group yeah, of people? Yeah, with me or? with about four other dancers. Yep. And it was, you know, now it's a very fashionable part of New York, right in the heart of the garment district, uh, near um, Hell's Kitchen, you know, lots of transgender people and prostitutes. And it was really interesting for me because when you're in a ballet company, it's, it's a very protected lifestyle, you know. You you get on a plane, uh, you get off the plane in another country, your, your suitcases are delivered to your hotel door, you know, all of that. Very protected. You know, get your hair cut, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So in New York, all of a sudden I realised, well, I have a kind of a sense of freedom, I'm not tied down to classical dance. I've, the doors have opened and it's like, you know, anything, anything. There's a horizon of ideas. There's all those other people searching for new ideas, you know, whatever Andy Warhol was doing or Robert Maplethorpe or all these different people. There was all that energy. So I think that energy of New York's never really left me. Because when I came back to Australia, I kind of went, and I came back to Graham Murphy. That was fabulous. Graham Murphy, Sydney Dance Company, kind of saved my life because Graham had that kind of really incredible energy to be different, to be challenging. So was, went, was Sydney Dance Company starting at that time when you came back? Or no. Or were you one of the, well, the original no, dancers? No, no, because it works the other way around. I was with the Sydney Dance... Yeah, that's right. I went once to Martha and then I came back and then I went again. And during that time I worked with Graham Murphy and we went to Italy and did all of that. But Graham was the sort of innovator of contemporary dance in Australia. And I remember I had a choice, go back to the Australian Ballet Company or go back to Graham. And if I went back to Graham to the Australian Ballet Company, I probably would have wanted to uh, groom myself to become a ballet master. Um, but Martha Graham flipped my head out, and so Graham was the only person I could go to. And I said to Graham Murphy when we were in Woolloomooloo in the old factory, and he was going through a fantastic creative period, can I start teaching dance classes after hours because we don't have any? Because in New York I could go to dance classes until 9 o'clock at night. And he said yes. And so that's how I, I started practising my teaching, by... Graham giving me the opportunity to use those studios in Woolloomooloo that were derelict, not the ones that are there now, and I started all that up. I started all those night classes for the Sydney Dance Company, and I did, like, two a week, three a week, and they were really, really successful. But 
that gave me the opportunity to put all that New York in it. They were, I bump into people now who say, oh, Paul, do you remember me? And I go, oh, I'm sorry, darling, no, no. She goes, oh, I used to do your dance classes at the Sydney Dance Company. They were so crazy and wild but fabulous. And I can remember when the mirrors used to fog up and the sweat, and, you know, we were had a fabulous time. So it was a... When people say that to you after 30 or something years... Wow, that's like, oh my God, did we really do that? That's the New York energy, you see. Well, after observing one of your classes, the photographer Robert McFarlane said, described you as a man of fire. Yep, that's right. There's the energy. That's it. Keep up to date with the latest guests on Stages by following us on Instagram at Stages Podcast Pete or like our Facebook page, Stages. There you'll be able to see the faces of those I've chatted with and some further background information. Hear guests like Tony Lamont talk about the time that she was offered the chance to be the first female host of a Tonight Show in the world. So they decided to give me the Monday night and the new young guy that was working with Graham, Bert Newton, got the Thursday night because I'd been successful on them. And we didn't realise until later that, because I didn't think about it, I mean, you you don't think when you get those things about who else is doing the Tonight Show in the world? You don't think of those things. And guess who the next person was? My sister, Helen Reddy. I say to my students, I don't want to put the fire out inside. You know, here you are, you're 14. Why are you doing this? There must be some fire inside there that wants you to do this. Look what you've got in your body that does your... And I say, does your sister learn to dance? And they say, no. I said, well, see what you can do and what your sister can't do? That's your effort. You've done that. We've just told you what to do. That's the energy that you're putting into your learning to get this far and you'll go further. And I think the other interesting thing is as you get older, you kind of realise that that energy and that focus that you've put into your body to become a dancer because it's important to remember that when you're a teacher, dancing doesn't tell any lies. They either do it and it looks good or they can't do it and it's just embarrassing to, you know, they know it's not good. So when I say to them, it doesn't tell any lies, that clicks. That really, really clicks with them. And that that effort they're putting in to make themselves into a dancer will be passed on to into all the other things that they do, how they look after their house, how they present themselves, because as a performer, you've got to learn to present yourself. So it's quite a... Discipline. Yeah, and I kind of think, wow, you know, I truly have danced my life. You know, what did did you do in those dance classes, those early ones that you set up, that was different to what any student would have experienced before? Um, There's lots of yelling, lots of stomping. Yeah, lots of that kind of really wild disco jazz movement. You know, really wild. African disco, because I used to do Afro dance classes in New York, you know, with African people, and that's an incredible energy. So I I put a lot of that into into it because 
You know, we weren't where New York was. This was Sydney and that was New York. Remember, we used to all go to London in the 60s and, you know, Portobello Road and, you know, the Beatles, most artistic people that were, you know, trying to enhance their career went to England and then there was a flip and we all started to go to New York. So that was a very interesting time. So, yeah, I think what I did put into those classes was a lot of my own freedom, my own my own personal improvisational way of moving, but a lot of Afro-American disco stuff because the Paradise Garage was predominantly black and Puerto Rican and Larry Levan, who was playing all that, that underground music that nobody had heard of here, House, was black. So there was an incredible energy there. And whenever anybody visited me from Australia and I'd take them there, they just had a transformation in their life. It was like, (laughs) you know, some cathartic spiritual thing had happened because it was truly a phenomenal place to be. So let's let's jump back in time again because okay. we, we've left that boy. At sorry, the, I'm <laughs> we, sorry. No, that's great. We've left a boy at the Australian Ballet School. Yeah. Um, what did you learn at the at the ballet school? How did that further your uh, education? It cemented my technique in classical dance. Very privileged to have teachers like Dame Maggie Scott, Peggy Van Praag. Um, so where did these women come from that, that, that were teaching? That they... England. Right, okay. So they came to Royal Australia. Royal Ballet School. So um, they're the founders of, of dance think, in Australia? I think, I'm not sure. Yeah. Hmm. Peggy Van Prague, yeah. You're well. Um, uh, Bowden Visa was the kind of the contemporary movement of dance in Australia. But Peggy Van Prague came from Sadler's Wells. I think Maggie Scott too. But, you know, when I was at the Australian Ballet School, we learnt mine with George Ogilvy. I mean, <laughs> who I, I believe, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I think he was a student of Marcel Marceau. Right, OK. Yep. Right. And so we learnt all that figurative mime. Yeah, the Australian, Australian Ballet School gave me my solid, you know, technical foundation as a dancer, as a classical dancer, and being small a character dancer, you know, like lots of character dancing, like Russian character dancing, Ukrainian character dancing, which seems to have gone by the by. Yeah, it gave me my it gave me my academic foundation in dance. So it was, um, it was obviously a feeder school for the Australian Ballet. Was mm-hmm. were students guaranteed? No, no, no guaranteed job. No. But, but you were being watched in, in, your, in your entire time there to see whether that potential yeah, was there. Yeah, well, and, there, and, and more than just being watched, that thing about can you sustain the commitment for that amount of time, what's your attendance like, all of that, not one day off, two days, one day on, two days off, about that constant thing about every day, every day, because a dancer has to have that skill because you do seven performances a week and you need to be reliable. So it teaches you that. So, yeah, so absolutely, absolutely, yes, being watched. And yes, I remember saying to you before, I was amazed when they told me that I'd been given a contract. Are you invited or did you need to audition? 
No, no, no. We had to do our exams. Right. Okay. So we did our three year course, and every year we did a every year we did a we did a we did our assessment exams, and we passed or we failed. And in the last year, we did our assessment exams. You know, with a lot of people out there, it wasn't just on the one panel, right. on the panel. They were all there from the ballet company. So Peggy Van Prague would have been there. They were all there, and we had to do. We had to do it. We just had to do it, and we had to do what we were to. We had we had a a part of do. We had to dance. We had to do a ballet class. We had to do a solo, and I got the job. I got a job. I got a contract. What was your first production with the ballet company? Um. I think the very first thing I ever did was walk on stage with a stag on a stick with another boy in the first act of Giselle in the hunting scene, and <laughs> <laughs> um, standing very still with a you know a deer wearing a kilt. No, no, wearing a sort of a leprechaun outfit with a little green hat and you know suede all suede like you know Giselle country peasant holding a deer that had been caught on the hunt that was hanging upside down by its hooves. And then I sort of got into doing other things and got to, to do Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream because Ashton came out from the Royal Ballet. Sir Frederick Ashton. Sir Frederick Ashton, yes. That and, must have been... Uh... And I got that and then lots of other fabulous things and, you know... Did you know who Fred... Well, of course you would have known who Frederick Ashton was. You would have, you would have studied him yeah, or, yeah, or learned yeah. of him at the school. Well, of course I knew who he was and when he walked into the room, that's another one of those... You know, those Martha Graham events, you know, like, oh, my God, this is Sir Frederick Ashton. Oh, my dear. Wow. What if I danced with him in um, Cinderella and I used to have to catch him at the end of his solo when he was in drag and he'd sort of dive into my arms and say something really dirty and nasty, like, you know, <laughs> crack some terrible joke because he'd dive into my arms. I was Napoleon and he'd dive into my arms in drag. He wasn't hit, wasn't light. And then I had to sort of flip him over and stand him up so he could curtsy with his fan to the audience. <laughs> Whenever he curtsied and fanned him, he would say something really naughty to me. So that, because I wasn't allowed to crack up because I was like, a, I had to dance like a statue with this, you know, big puffed padded belly and, you know, my hair in a ponytail dressed as Napoleon, you know. And he'd try to crack me up every night. Yeah, they don't make, as I said to you before, they don't make people like that anymore. He was fabulous. So you've gone to the uh, Australian Ballet School. You're in the Australian Ballet... Company. Company. You're, you're playing Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yep. You're, you've been in the company about nine months, I believe. Yep. And then tragedy strikes. Yes. <laughs> A car accident. A car accident. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember that, that night? I remember the car accident. You were, I... you were travelling from Sydney to Melbourne or...? From Sydney to Melbourne... Doing 40 miles an hour, no other car, tyre blew, blew out going around a corner. Um, the policeman said to me that had we not been thrown out of the car, the engine would have chopped our legs off because it was in the boot. The car crashed into a tree. So you're travelling with other people? One other dancer, right. Colin Peasley. He cut his ear and was out of hospital in three days. And I borrowed my pelvis in three places with lots of other nice little things like whatever I did to myself. And I was in skeletal traction. But the amazing thing is, it wasn't my time. Because you, you were told that you may not walk again, let alone dance. Yeah, well, I wasn't. My parents were. Right. My mother was. Because yeah. no one ever, reached, ever said that to me. Right. 
And I'm kind of glad they did, didn't, did, didn't, because I think that might have you done still, something to me. Yeah. Um, but it's a, a, a series of events that I think about quite often, about, you know, how life can just be taken away from you. The lady behind me that was driving behind us was a nurse going to the hospital. The surgeon in the hospital was from England and he was in the hospital showing the doctors this new skeletal traction technique because lots of people in the rural parts of Australia have farm accidents and break all their bones. And so instead of being, if you broke your pelvis, instead of being in plaster from your knees up to your ribs, they put these steel pins through your legs and then attach ropes to that, elevate the bed at the back and hang the ropes over and adjust your pelvis under x-ray. And he was in the hospital <laughs> teaching them how to do that. And wow. here's me, the guinea pig arrives. Yeah. So that happened. So that's the next blessing. So there were kind of like three blessings. And I'd also been to the bathroom. So my bladder was empty. And I remember all this because this is what, this is my life experience. Um, that the bone in the pelvis broke would have stuck a hole in my bladder or something. If it was full. If it was full, yes. Yeah, right. So whatever. That was a blessing. And there I was in Wagga Base Hospital for how many months? And I recovered. And then I went back to Melbourne. I was flown back to Melbourne in an air ambulance and went through therapy. And Peggy Van Prague had been on crutches for most of her, as she retired, from being a dancer. She'd had a lot of hip replacements. So I went to stay with Peggy Van Prague who had had an operation on a hip at Dame Maggie Scott's house in Melbourne and she had a swimming pool. And so I spent a lot of my time with Peggy Van Prague and Maggie Scott rehabilitating in the swimming pool. And then I just said, I'm going to go, but when can I go back and start dancing again? And I got myself back to uh, the ballet school the, with the ballet company and the first day I went back, I was terrified and I did some plies and some tonjus and a little bit of bar work. And then I gradually progressed that and built it up and up and up and up until I could dance again. Not probably to what I used to be like, but I took much more care. I was much more careful. And then eventually over time, my technique really improved because I took much more care. I wasn't that young, wild boy jumping all over the place, you know. And uh, I think the next thing I did was the blue boy in Les Patineurs and my surgeon came to that performance and couldn't believe what I was doing, basically. So I don't want to get all emotional. It still affects me emotionally. But, the, but des the desire to dance must have been so strong that that was that was your chief focus. You were going to you were going to get back on that stage. To this day, I can't believe how I did that. Yeah, I can't believe how I got through all that. But I did. So I have to give myself credit that I've got a lot more strength than I think I've got. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, not I'm not a hypochondriac. Uh, I don't like to complain about my health. But obviously a lot of people on your side as well, family, yeah. friends, and colleagues. I remember 
talking to them about that at the Graham School when I was in New York, because I had to put all that down in my application to be accepted to study at the school. You know, you've got to put down... Previous all, injuries. Yeah, yeah, well, not not that, just a health thing, you know, and the yeah. doctor's got to do all these tests because I've, I've got to get a student visa and all that to go to New York. Yeah. And then when they read that, they couldn't quite believe what was going on. And while I was in New York, one of the touring companies from Alvinaley had a bus accident and a lot of the dancers were injured. So they asked me to go to the hospital and talk to the dancers that were injured to help them sort of give them a bit of a lift because they were facing, you know, for a dancer to have a car accident, it's traumatic. You know, for a dancer to fall over in class and break their ankle is traumatic. You know, acrobats of God on the high wire of life. You know what I mean? Like, we're on this really high wire and we've got this balancing act to do and we're jumping and we only have to slip and dislocate a knee or a hip or, you know, a vertebrae in your back. And people don't think about that because we're trained to make it all look so easy. And it's not. You know, it's really not. And a lot of dancers suffer with a lot of disabilitating injuries for the rest of their life, you know. Huge bunions, arthritis in the joints, hip replacements, knee replacements. So there's a, there's a price to pay for that kind of beautiful feeling of freedom. Because when you dance, it's such a beautiful feeling of freedom. You're so free. Listen to more fascinating interviews like this on the Stages podcast. Keep up to date with the latest guests on Stages by following us on Instagram at Stages Podcast Pete or like our Facebook page, Stages. There you'll be able to see the faces of those I've chatted with. And don't forget to subscribe. When you're at the um, Australian Ballet, they undertake quite an extraordinary adventure in that they film Don Quixote under Helpman's supervision. Um, you talk about it being filmed in a... An airport hangar. That's right, at, at Tullamarine Airport. And it was 43 degrees outside and we were like, oh. <laughs> what, did, what did you think as dancers when they told you that we're going to put this, this ballet on film? Oh, it was fabulous. I mean, we had the greatest male dancer in the world with us. Rudolph I mean, Nero. heaven's above. Yeah. <laughs> and Lucette Aldis. And Lucette Aldis, who was unbelievable. I can remember the continuity people had to relight the candles on the stairs in the last act. And we used to have to sit and wait for them to relight the candles so on no the stairs. So no lighting effects here. These were real candles. Re- yeah, candles, but with lighting. Okay. And, you know, it was wonderful. You know, you talked about Helpman before, watching him direct all that, you know, being the Don, but actually, you know, then going back behind the camera and helping all these, you know, getting into all that with Nureyev and everything. I'd never ever made a movie before. It was tiring and gruelling. But Lucette Aldous must have done a thousand fuetes like in a day because she had to go do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again. They had to relight all the candles. And we can remember sitting there looking at her and her point shoe never left the spot. She was right on that spot. She must have done over a thousand fuetes in a day to get that right, you know. 
We did things over and over and over again. It was a really fabulous experience. It was demanding, but we knew we were with, you know, what, with some of the greatest people in the dance world making that. And to this day, it's still being played. Yes, it's held up as one of the, yeah, the great it, works of yeah, dance. Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. How long, how long did it take to film? I think about three, two and a half, three weeks, I okay, think. Right. Something I can't really remember. Yeah, yeah. But it was gruelling because it was in the summer. But there's a terrific documentary about the making of it as yeah, well. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. Yeah, I, I've seen that. Yeah, so little me with, you know, I pop up and go, oh, is that really me? Oh, dear me. You know, I, having this interview with you makes me understand that, you know, I have a conversation with somebody and I'll say, well, when I was in New York, blah, 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 and then I'll walk away and go, I didn't make that up. That actually really happened. Um. You danced with Nureyev many times, not yeah. only in Don Q. Yeah, Hamlet, the grave digger. What was he like as a, as a bloke? Very disciplined, very strict, uh, very demanding. But you take that in your stride when you're a dancer, because there are a lot of people like that. I think there was probably a bit of a language barrier. You know, he was a Russian and, right. he, was, and he was a peasant yep. and he had this fantastic energy and he was a superstar. Um, but we all danced a hell of a lot better. Within three months, we were dancing like we, were never, we weren't dancing before. He, he lifted the company's standard to world class. So it doesn't matter how much yelling, <laughs> how much screaming, there was a benefit from that. Nureyev was amazing. That that we benefit benefit from that that discipline. Did you get to know the the, the personal Nureyev? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, um, and he was really lovely. Yep. Yeah, he was really, really a really a really kind of really lovely man, a really, really compassionate, beautiful man. Um, Martha Graham, back to your your hero or one of the great inspirations in your career, once famously said. A dancer dies twice, once when they stop dancing, and this first death is the more painful. Do you remember the last time you danced? Do I remember the last time I danced? Yeah, in the classroom the other day. All <laughs> oh, right, yeah, still, what about professionally? Oh, professionally, yes, I do remember. I do remember it was with Graham Murphy. I can't remember what it was, though. But it was when I was in the Sydney Dance Company. <clears throat> What's that transition like when you, when your body tells you that that um, you can no longer? Oh no, I didn't stop because I no longer could. I stopped because I wanted to. Right. I could have kept going, but I wanted to stop. Right. I, I, I wanted to stop that performance schedule. I wanted to stop that, and I wanted to stop it before I did anything really bad to my hips or whatever. So did you know what you were going to do? Yep, you I knew I was going to teach for at least 10 years before I stopped. Did you have a, a teaching appointment lined up? I used to teach the Australian Ballet Company before a performance. So I was practising my teaching skills while I was still in the Ballet Company. You became, uh, were you a principal or you were at NASDA, the I was National a, Aboriginal yeah, Islander Dance Company? Yeah, I was the principal dance, principal dance teacher, choreographer in residence at And you NASDA, were there for quite a while? 21 Years, 20 years, 21 years. Martha Graham technique starts on the floor and you don't wear shoes. 
Now, the best thing to do with Indigenous Aboriginal people is to sit them down on the floor, not put them in tights. And so it worked really well. They understood it. It was organic. It was earthy. Out of Naysta came Bangara. So I taught, taught Stephen Page and that whole generation of people that are now doing fabulous things. I, I taught them that Graham technique that I learned in New York. So we did works with that Graham base. What about um, Indigenous traditional dance? Is and that we, something you can use or borrow no, from? No, no, no. Can't touch that. That's to, very sacred. You leave that in its place. I've learned a lot of it. Okay, yeah. I've done a lot of it with them out in the bush. You know, those old men have painted me up and I've put the naga on, and I've, but I would never put any of that into my work. No, that has its place. You know, that's sacred absolutely to them. There's a lot of copyright protocol about all of that too, you know. Okay. Because I, I actually did some movement once and I got into trouble for it. So we don't go there. You know, we leave that as it is. That's theirs. It belongs to them. And I totally and utterly respect that. Paul Salibert, you've had an extraordinary life and contributed much to um, dance in Australia. Thanks for chatting to Stages today. It's been fabulous. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. It's been great talking to you. It's kind of wakes up a lot of stuff, you know, but just it's the past, you know. It's it's that past, but it makes you who you are, you know. It's, it's interesting to sometimes do what we've just done and kind of reflect on that. I'm not, I'm, I don't consider myself to be special. It's not about being special or, you know, a star. It's, a dancing life's a hard one. And unless you really love that, you know, you're not going to make it. I, it's the same for you as an actor or somebody who, you know, slides down on skis on a slope and does all that fabulous stuff or all those people are on, it's, unless you really love that, you can't achieve it at that level of, you know, I just think it's wonderful. I kind of count my blessings that I've been able to dance for so many people when I think about, you know, 12 years on stage or even Graham Murphy longer choreographing all that work, all that stuff we've given out to people for those amount of years, I think that's great. You know, all those people that you don't even know that you forget came to the ballet on a matinee, you know, all those lovely old ladies in Brisbane that came to the ballet and, and also Robert Heltman's door, you know, that we did that, that we entertained all of those people that we'll never know. And if you think about it, it's probably millions of people over a certain amount of time. I kind of feel really good about that. Yeah. Well, that's a powerful responsibility as a performer, isn't it? That those yeah, but to be able to have the opportunity to do that, those now, people you can affect. And yeah, touch. now that I've now that I don't do it, and I think about that, it's been nice to be able to give that to to the human rat, to, to you know, to your fellow mankind. Thanks, Paulie. Thank you. Beautiful. Have a great day. <laughs> Enjoy. Let's have lunch. <laughs>